Uh, I work for Reply All. We do a lot of stories, uh, but the stories that we love the most, the stories that we talk about internally for a long time and like get the most excited about are the kinds of stories I'm going to talk about today, which are basically like stories that um, we know very little about what they're going to be when we start them. Or maybe we think we do, but we're wrong. Um, and so the, I'm going to like walk through one specific story that when it started seemed very simple and turned out not to be. Um, Okay, so the way it started was that I, we, we were very desperate for ideas, and I had seen like some article somewhere about this website called Tripset, um, which is not a good idea for a radio story, but what it is is like this website where if you're too high on drugs, you can go to it, and some stranger somewhere will like talk you down. So they'll say like, listen, I know you want to go run into like your parents' bedroom and tell them you took a bunch of like uh, mushrooms, but if you just sit here for a while, it's going to be okay. Um, so this did not seem like, sometimes we have stories that seem at the outset stronger than this one did. Um, like, it seemed like possibly it could be the character profile of the guy who runs the site, um, and maybe you'd get to just kind of like experience the world. Like, who are these people? Why do they do it? What is it like? So, uh, like the most deadly words at Reply All are, this is going to be a simple two-way. Uh, <laughs> like, I'm not allowed to say it anymore because people know them lying, even though I don't know them lying. But that's like what we thought it was. We're like, we're just going to talk to this guy. If he's a great talker, we got a story. If not, we're not going to kill ourselves trying to make it work. And so the way we start any story is we start to think about like, the way we think this is going to go, what are the beats going to be? So like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Th these, these are like the kinds of notes we were taking for ourselves but I can make it make sense. So like, even before we talked to him, we had this sort of dream idea that if we could get him to describe one situation he'd been in, like one person who was in dire need, and do it really dramatically, then that was gonna be the beginning of the story. Like you wouldn't even know that this was about a website. You'd feel like it was like an emergency hotline, real life. So that was gonna be the first thing that happened. And then we were gonna like zoom out and be like, but wait guys, it's a website. And everybody would feel like surprised and shocked, it'd be wonderful. And then we'd meet Reality, the guy who runs it, and he was going to be this fantastic talker, and he was going to spin like wonderful, like very specific stories about the website and tell us information about him, and like we'd get to find out like how do you get good at this, and like why does he do it, and like what does he worry about, and what are the other people like, and we had this like dream version. If everything works, this is our story. Um, although I should say like even in that dream version, like we did not know what the ending was going to be. There were questions, but like we knew the map we wanted to go into. Um, something I talked about briefly yesterday that I want to talk a little bit more about today is the way we prep for interviews is we try to do it very extensively. So like once we know the beats we think the story has, this is like an early prep, it got better, but we'll organize what we're going to do by the section of the story it is. So this is like, I've been working in radio for nine years. For the first seven years, nobody told me this, uh, and I wasted a lot of time. The way I would prep for interviews, I would just have like a really long list of the questions I wanted to ask. And they'd be in the order I thought the story was going to go, but it was like a very long list of questions. And so what would always happen to me is I'd get flustered, I'd be talking to somebody, they would say something that I should follow up on, and you'd just hear like in the tape, like the rustle of paper is like <laughs> the moment sail by my head, because I was like, wait, hold on, 61. Um, <laughs> So after seven years, uh, what I was told, which was really useful, is like, don't do that. Um, 
And so what we do now is we think like, okay, so the, the first thing we want, we think, is like, how did this even start, the origin? And so we'll have questions, and, and sometimes we'll have specific questions, but the way that I'm trying to think more now is like, what are we gonna need to tell this story? Like if you think of it almost as like a film camera and you have to get coverage, like you're gonna need him to describe how he felt at the time. You're gonna, hopefully he'll say something that feels like, oh, and I was thinking this, like you'll be inside his head. You'll wanna know how he felt. But, but you have this sort of laundry list of things you need to get for that part of the story. And when you have them, you move on. And when you don't have it yet, you stay. And the reason this is important, besides it makes me not have to re-interview people as often, is it lets us do this other thing, which I'm gonna to get to in a second. So we go in with this. Um, he is not death to radio, but like pretty, pretty bad to radio. Um, he's not a good talker. And some of that is my fault because I have this like preconceived idea of what I think the story is gonna be and he's frustrating me and not doing it. Some of it, in my heart of hearts, I still feel like it's his fault for just not being what I wanted him to be. Um, I'm gonna play you guys some bad tape. It's not, it's not like, it's not the worst tape, it's not super funny bad tape, but it's just like, you can hear me trying to do stuff that's not gonna work. Uh, so one of his superpowers in an interview was that um, he was really good at deflecting questions that were specifically about him. Um, so one thing that was like, this will definitely work, it's just like, a question I'm often interested in is like, why are you specifically good at this? Like what makes somebody a good online drug calmer downer? Uh, so I asked him why he was good at it, and he was like, well, the qualities that make a trip sitter good are this, this, and this. And like, he just had this sort of ability to go to abstraction really fast. Um, and I tried, like I interviewed him for three hours, and it was like a lot of staying on one of these beats and just like, I also had Tim, uh, a producer on our show sitting next to me, and just being like, no, 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 you've gotta get him, you've gotta get him, and just like was not working. Like the way it felt at the time was, when you don't have cell service and you get like one bar and you're just like hoping that you'll get to two, like the whole time there's like little flickers at the store that like maybe it could happen, but every time he was close to being personal, um, it wouldn't work. I do want to play you guys this moment though, because there was one thing that happened that made me feel a little bit good. Um, I think I think most people come into trip setting, um, trip setting itself uh, because it's it's a sense of uh, empathy and experience. Like, for example, uh, I think back to times where uh, before, you know, I knew much about drugs. I'm sitting there on LSD. It's like thoughtful and fine. It's just like not what you want in a radio interview. But the, the one thing, and it's not like a huge thing, but the one moment in the interview <clears throat> that felt really good or better or whatever was not something I'd been looking for. It was like off prep. Um, he'd for a while been talking about how much he loved the people he'd met through the site, how great they were. And I started to get this idea in my head, not as a person who's used hallucinogenic drugs, which is what he used, about how he was sort of walking through this daytime world that was his real life that he didn't really want to talk about, and then this other world, which was underground and anonymous and different. And I just like wondered about what that felt like. And I asked a question that was like trying to work that out. So a lot of your time is spent talking to people who are very high or talking to people who are friends online but in a community that, you know, spends a lot of time thinking about drugs and drug safety. When you go out in the real world, does it affect how you see just people in the real world? Um, I, uh, 
I I don't know. I mean, I'm I the 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 two worlds really don't intersect for me much. Uh, apart from you know when I do go and meet people from Tripsit, but I mean I I I don't feel the same sense of generosity elsewhere in my life. I think really so maybe I'm not comfortable with saying that. So like this is very small. All he said basically was that he thought the people on drugs were nicer than the people off drugs, which I just didn't expect him to say. Like, that surprised me. And so we started talking for a while, again, like, off the prep about hallucinogenics. And he said that, like, he walks around the world, he sees people, and they're so, like, clammed up and anxious and unkind, and he just thinks, like, you should take hallucinogenic drugs. You'll be fine. Uh, and, like, I had never heard somebody make that case when it was, like, at all persuasive. And... Personally, like as a human, as a like human, like the one he was describing, like clenched up and anxious and moody, um, I was like, huh, that's neat. And it was like the kind of thing where I was like, well, this interview doesn't work. But when I went home, I was like talking to my friends about this weird thing that had happened in this interview. So we decided to kill this story because it wasn't very good. And this thing happened, which sometimes happens on our show, which is that um, we don't have a lot of story ideas. And so stories that we decided were bad um, start to look kind of good after a couple weeks. <laughs> And what we do that I think that I want to talk about today, which I think is different, um, it's not like we invented it, but, but the thing we do a lot and we're proud of is when we realize that we will start just building on the broken thing rather than like throwing it away and, you know, like doing a story about people who think hallucinogenics are good. We'll take the thing we tried to do and we'll leave it in. So we go to phase two of this story. It's no longer a simple two way. Um, and we take kind of like the original beats for our story, more or less, and what they've led us to is a new question, not the one we wanted to ask. So originally, we were just like, what's going on on this website? Not the world's best question. And now we have one that's like kind of more provocative and interesting, like I actually care about, which is, could LSD make you a better person? It's also kind of a dumb question, and we like dumb questions. Um, so a bunch of months pass until we actually pick this up again. Um, and when we do, we feel like we kind of like know the kind of story that we're telling now, which is like a magazine story. Like, or maybe it's like a Planet Money story. It's like we have this question, and we're going to go around the world, and we're going to try to answer it. So we found this guy, James Fadiman, who was in the 60s. He was an LSD researcher when the government paid for LSD research. And he found all this stuff that felt really inspiring and good, and he was like, I'm going to change the world. And then Richard Nixon was elected, and the government was like, we're not paying for LSD research. Uh, and so he lost his job. Everybody he knew lost his job. It wasn't just that he couldn't get funding. It was like it was illegal. And so we were like, okay, we're going to tell the story of reality. He's going to lead us to this question. And then we're going to use that as an excuse to meet this, like, secret history of psychedelics guy. That's great. And he was another character, and we liked him. And he said, even though it was banned, he'd basically gone underground and was doing uh, what he called microdosing research in secret. And so the microdosing thing was that he decided, yeah, people shouldn't get high on LSD all the time. Or actually, they should. They, they should take LSD all the time, but just not get high on it. Like, he said that people should take a tiny amount uh, every day in the morning, not enough to make you... He was like, if the rocks are sparkling, you're doing it wrong. But he thought that if you just did a little bit, you would have what he'd observed were these, like, long-term good effects, like more empathy, better focus, less junk food, whatever, without having to, like, you know listen to like the bad Beatles songs all the time or whatever. 
So we liked this. We didn't know we were, where we were going, but it just felt like we have an actual question. We're meeting people. Like, let's keep moving. So the other thing I just want to show you guys is that as we're writing, like, we're sort of writing as we're going. Like, we're writing the story as we have it. And we'll write from our beats. So like, rather than doing a bunch of writing and then figuring out what the structure is, we'll sit down and we'll like, say the feelings we want this to have. Um, so it's like Jim, he was a researcher back in the day, a bunch of boring health stuff, whatever. And like, the important thing for us was this idea that like, the reveal in his interview that he wasn't just a researcher of this stuff, he's like, I've been microdosing every single day. Um, we liked that. Like, we knew we wanted that moment. So we had our question. We had a character. This is where the story entered like phase three. Like we put another structure on top, um, which is, I don't have to check my notes. I know what happened. Um, we decided to do this experiment where I would microdose on LSD and go to work for a couple weeks. Um, which <laughs> we, we, the reason we felt good about it, um, even though it was like very much a stunt uh, in a lot of ways, is we were like, at this point, like we're giving our story a lot of things that can happen. Like, we sort of think of our story sometimes as like flow charts, like if this, then that. And I was like, okay, so if we do this, nothing could happen, and then we'd learn something. Like, we'd learn that taking tiny amounts of LSD is not a useful idea. Something terrible could happen, uh, which would be great for us. Like, then we'd learn it's also a bad idea, but in a really dramatic way. Or something good could happen, which would be such a neat surprise. Um, and it also felt like, again, we were like, okay, we, now we know the, this third story we're gonna tell on top of the story we also know the structure of this. Like, this American Life's testosterone episode, uh, people heard that? It's, it's pretty, if people haven't, like, it's so good, it's so good. But they just, they, they're sort of studying testosterone as a show, and as part of it, they do a test where they all measure their testosterone. And there's this like inherent structure and drama to it. It's like, what's gonna happen when we find out? Like, how do we feel about that? Like, the fallout of it. Like, it, there's just like a fun drama and we were like, okay, we're gonna get to do that. We're gonna get to do our version of that in this. So, um, let me just, I don't, I can't see the tape, so let me just make sure I'm playing the right thing. Um, so we did it, and things happened, and they were good for radio. Um, this is just a moment that happened about halfway through. I ha we hadn't told a lot of people in the office that this was happening, because it was like part of what we wanted to know is if they would notice. Um, but my boss, he just sort of like was looking at me funny. Um, so this is that. At one point, I noticed my boss, Matt Lieber, was sort of looking at me funny. He asked me if something was going on. So I pulled him aside for a quick interview. So Matt Lieber, uh, we're doing an experiment where I've been taking small amounts of LSD before work. And sometimes at work. I, don't tell I don't want to know this. What, why are you talking? Why are you telling me that? Like, what do you want? You nothing. I don't want anything from you. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Well, I'll tell you what. I actually have thought you've been kind of distant. I should just say, the thing that was happening to me this week is I was getting very uh, goopy and emotional. And you can hear that, and it's very embarrassing. You've been a little um, distanced this week. Really? Yeah, you just... Like, I came to talk to you yesterday and wish you a happy birthday. And you talked to me for, like, a minute, and then you turned back to your screen and kept working. And normally I would have talked to like, longer. Yeah. But I figured you were just busy or something. This was a mild thing for Matt to say, but I cannot tell you how deeply it affected me. To me, it felt like he was crying out with some deep psychic pain. As our conversation progressed, I got goopier and more earnest in this way that looking back is frankly really embarrassing. Maybe it's making you um, like less political. 
like, I don't what? talk to you for political reasons. Maybe it's like, I don't feel I need to. Like, you're, like, living your own self. You don't need to, like, kowtow to your, to the president of the company you work for. But I don't want to, I don't want to kowtow. I want to. It's that weird voice thing. Um, so it was interesting. Like, at this point in the story, we were fighting about the story a lot. Because there were people on staff, very fairly, who were just like, this is a fucking vice story. Like, oh, like, you're going to do drugs and talk about it? That's really interesting and new. And they were right. Like, there was a version of it that was absolutely that. And there's beats in the story that feel like that. And this is, like, part of what I wanted to talk about is we don't... There are stories that we kill, and there are stories that we build on. And it's not always clear why we're building on the stories that we're building on, except for that there can be this, like, feeling of stubbornness. That you're like, I know that I'm not expressing what is good about this, and maybe I don't even know what's good about this, but, like, I as a human care about this in a way that feels important, and I want to keep going. Um, and so I was feeling really stubborn about it, even though I knew that that feedback was really good and accurate. And we have a culture that we've tried to cultivate, which is that, like, when stories are... We're, we're hard on stories when they're done. But when they're new, when it's still an idea, you're kind of not allowed to be mean to it. Like, it's like a baby, and you're not allowed to yell at the baby, and you're not allowed to be upset about the adult the baby's going to grow into. Like, we all have to support the baby, no matter how much we hate that baby. <laughs> and, like, this was still kind of a baby. Like, it was a story that had not, like, expressed itself yet. And, like, it's just, like, a thing that I'm proud of and happy about. And, like, I just try to say, because I think, like, I, I want more people to be this way, because I've worked in different places, and sometimes they're more like that, sometimes they're less. Like, a thing that happens a lot at Reply All that I, makes me really happy is someone will be like, you'll say an idea, and someone will be like, that's extremely stupid, which it is, and they'll be like, but if we had to make it work? <laughs> and then we'll just start. And, like, this story was a lot of that. Um, and I think part of what made it, like, whatever the intangible, why you're going to keep going thing exists is, like, we do a lot of stories where the structure and the drive of it is the reporter's curiosity, where we're going to go to a bunch of different places. They're not really related, but they're related because we had a question that we explained to you, and we had to go from there to there to answer it. And what I like about those stories when they work is, like, I think there's reporter curiosity, which I've done stories in a lot and will continue to do, but where, like, all the questions you have are very convenient. Like... I had to go to the next guy who said he had time to interview me to explain, like, you're saying you have questions, but you go into the story sort of with a very structured curiosity. And then sometimes you get to do stories that are about, like, human curiosity, where you're like, I talked to this guy, he mentioned this thing about LSD, and I thought about it for four months. And, like, I wanted to know this. Like, I really did want to know this, and I didn't even know why. And so... That, I think that's important, and I, I think, like, this story, I feel proud of it. It could have sucked, but I think one of the reasons it didn't was, like, I had some itch that I was trying to get to. So another thing that happens with us with these kinds of stories is, like, they're really hard to write when they're done. And this story's not done yet. Um, but they're hard to write because oftentimes you have to kind of perform or like embody the curiosity you had while you were doing it, which I'm gonna talk about more later if that doesn't make any sense, which not, I don't think it does. Um, I'm gonna play you an example of it actually. So like the, the sort of end of this part of the story was this big piece of writing. It was a thing that happened, that ended the experiment that we were doing, and this is like the, the last day of it, which was not originally going to be the last day of it. So Saturday, I get up, I have breakfast with my roommate Drew, 
I take my dose, which he thinks is ridiculous, and then we get in the car and he drives us up to Rhode Island. Let's get started. Drive safe. We're gonna stay on this for a hundred miles. Okay. Uh, can can we just get like a little bit of air? Oh yeah. Uh, do you want AC or window? Uh, not so AC. I'm in the car. Drew's talking about a Drew thing. It's a nice day. I'm looking forward to lunch. There's lots of cars on the road. Roads. I started thinking about roads. People design these things, and it's such a boring job, but also it's so important. Like, people are constantly dying in car accidents, and it's your job to minimize these deaths, but, like, you can never win. And then I noticed my breathing. I'd inhale. I'd exhale. And I felt like if I could just do this, just breathe, I'd be fine. This is my one job in life. Just keep breathing. It's not to worry about a work deadline or a breakup or my overdue parking tickets. I told Drew all of this. I explained to him that traffic was deadly and that breathing was important. And soon after that, I started shivering and shaking very hard. We stopped at a rest stop, and I called Fia and left her a voicemail. Hey, Fia, it's DJ. Uh, something just happened, and um, uh, yeah, like my brain feels like it's on LSD. <laughs> Fia later pointed out to me that I was not supposed to dose on Saturday. It was supposed to be a rest day. Plus, I had somehow taken my dose and Fia's dose. I told Drew I wanted him to keep driving, so he did. We crossed a very ordinary bridge, and I felt like I was passing through this grand doorway, leaving one world and going into another. The trees look beautiful. This is like not a hallucination, but they look like they're on fire. Another reason, possibly, that I'd wanted to keep microdosing is that I'd just come off a rough week. I'd broken up with somebody I loved, and it hurt. It felt like I was just one step ahead of this herd of stampeding feelings that I really, really did not want to catch me. And the microdose had seemed like maybe it would help me outrun those feelings. But then my brain did something weird. We were stuck in traffic on I-95, and I saw all the cars. And I thought about how many people there were in the world. And I felt tiny, like just a speck. And I realized that if I was so tiny, and the world was so vast, then the part of me that was hurting, that was even tinier. Even if that hurt felt very large to me, it was nothing. I tried to say this to Drew. The thing that I feel that I have not felt before right now is like the world feels really, really, really big and actually really connected. And it feels good to know that I am small. Drew is a kind and generous friend. And so he did not outright say what I know he was thinking, which is that these were boring drug cliches. But... The inside of a drug cliche, and I realize this now, it feels like a simple, pure, uncomplicated revelation. And that was a very useful place to get to visit. Uh, I also think that this is the end of microdosing for me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that piece of writing was like so hard. It was so hard. And it was like hard in a way that I I feel like I learned things about telling these kinds of stories while doing it. So... This is like an earlier draft of it. I meant to highlight stuff and I didn't, um, and I'm sorry for that. So the first time I wrote it, if you look at um, 
after that, so, so it started kind of the same way. It's like I kept doing it. You hear the beginning of this uh, trip. And then I gave everything away right up top, which is an impulse I often have that I have to be like pulled back from. So instead of sort of easing into this idea that, oh, this person's now actually high on drugs, um, I was like, just so you know, I, this is what happened. So everything makes too much sense as you go. So that was a big thing. The more important difficult thing, and I had never learned how to do this before, and it was really like um, Tim Howard, the executive producer of our show, and Peter Clowney, who's the editor of our show, sort of hashed out with me, was trying to do this kind of writing. Like, the way I'd written it, it says, I was thinking about how designing roads must be both the most boring and the most high-stakes job in the world. People die if you mess up, they die if you don't. This maybe seems like not that big a difference, but the writing they pushed me to do was to like actually try to make it feel like you were hearing the internal monologue I had then, rather than me like describing having had it. Um, and I think the reason that's important with these stories is like the transitions, like the, the here to here, they kind of exist in our heads, like they exist in our curiosity. And so if you can like embody it, if you can be like, no, 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 you're actually in my head right now. This is what I thought and how I felt about it. They succeed a lot more. The other thing that's important with this that we're learning um, is the performance of your read really matters. Not so much that you're able to like perform in an acty way, but like you need to communicate the actual feelings you had while you were doing it in the story. And it's really hard. Like Tim always says, um, he's like, I know you've chewed this bubble gum a lot, but like I need you to remember what it tasted like the first time you chewed it. Because this story was a year and a half. And so by the time we like sat down to write it, this all seemed very, very stupid to me. Um, and it needed not to. And so like, you know, one of the things I think about when we're working on this kind of thing is like, if you were walking into the conference today and you almost got hit by a car, you would tell the first four friends you saw about it. And every time you'd tell them, you'd be at like 10 emotionally. You'd be like, this driver, he like almost slid into me. I was so scared. He didn't even say anything. He drove off and he had a Trump bumper sticker. And then maybe the second time you told it, you like realized like nobody wants to think about the election. And so like you dropped the bumper sticker. You would edit the story, but you'd still tell it like a maniac. Like maybe if you were at 100% the first time, you're at like 95% the second time. And like we're able to do this. Like we're able to tell the same stories over and over again because they mean something to us as humans. As reporters, I find it way harder. Like I'm like, ah, like you, you, editing is a process of like hating your story more and more and more. And so it's weird to then like <laughs> step back and remember when you guys were still in love. And what, so, so like, the writing matters. I think the thing that helps the most, honestly, is having, it doesn't have to be like an editor or like, it can be a friend, but having someone that you are telling the story to over and over again while you're working on it, because they're gonna be the person who reminds you, like, four months ago, you cared about this. Like, you're leaving out how confused you were, or you're leaving out, like, how scared you were, or you're leaving out how excited you found that. Like, they will kind of hold you accountable um, it's also a thing we do a lot that I, I don't always see people do a lot and I think it helps us. It's like, just from like a structuring perspective, just from like an understanding your story perspective, we just tell our stories to each other all the time. Like, it doesn't have to be the people you're working with or whatever, but you're just like, hey, 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 I'm working on this thing, I just need to say it to you. Um, I find it really helps me remember what I like about it and it really helps me structure. Okay, so we did that and um, the people who had like hated what they thought the story was gonna be were placated. Um, which was cool, and I felt good. I felt like the reason I'd cared about it really was something that I'd kept like secret from me and like came out, and it was like the way I like, if stories are gonna be personal, I like them to surprise you that they're personal. I like to find out that you had a question for a reason. Um, 
But the thing that I really feel proud about with this story is that like, it didn't stop there. When we'd done the experiment, we'd made this choice to not tell some people in the office that we were doing it. One of the people was my co-host, like the person I work most closely with. And we just figured, like, we don't know what's going to happen in this story, but that gives us, like, one more possible card to play, if at all, whatever. And I liked this writing, I thought it was fine, but it felt like a little something to be like, this is what I learned on drugs. And so it was nice to have, like, another move to be able to make. Um, I think, I think this is going to work. Uh, yeah, okay, so that stops, and we go to, like, our fourth part, which we call a dump, like, conversations between reporters or hosts. And so the fun thing first was just, like, literally getting to tell Alex and see what he had noticed about this. So I'm going to play that. Did last week feel okay to you? What do you mean? Like, did I, I feel like I was being weird? Was I being weird? Like, all week? Yeah. I don't know, not that I can think of. Why? Well, uh, I was taking acid at work every day. What? Yeah. Every day? Well, I was doing this thing called microdosing, so I was taking a small amount throughout the week. Uh, can I tell you another piece of information? Sure. There was another person who was microdosing at work. She's in the room right now. Fia Benin. Hi, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you guys do it at work? That's the worst place to do anything fun. I guess now that you pointed out, that's totally true. That is insane. No, that was the that was I'm gonna, the way. It was I'm gonna, I can't afford like, ahead, so I'm just gonna let it go for a second. But like, well, what I really LSD like about this is it's LSD is what, and what I like about dumps in general is it's just like totally this is not what I wanted him to say. This is not how I wanted him to react. If I'd scripted it, it's not what I would have told him to do. He's like undercutting everything we just sold in this story. Like we just elevated the idea of like drugs being kind of transcendental by accident, blah blah. And he's like, it's a toy, and you're doing it at work, and it's stupid. And so there's this part where Fia's like saying everything we've learned and she's saying like, no, you know, it's supposed to be this and blah, blah, blah. And he's just like not taking it, which is fucking great. Sold a bill of goods by a cuckoo berry. Really? Yeah. He said you were sold a bill of goods by a cuckoo berry. I don't think that that is, I don't, I get it. I get that there are people who are like, I'm going to take this drug because it, it offers me epiphanies or it offers me some kind of equilibrium in the same way that pe there are people who self-medicate with marijuana. I wish I'd had some warning. Why? What do you mean? Because I'm blanking on anything that happened last week. It just feels like it feels like a gift because it's undercutting something. It's not something we could have planned, um, and it's just like Alex, and he's weird and funny, and like adds weird, funny, unexpected things. He also then sort of we talked about it for a bit, and then he tells this story, which like is not what I would have planned to be the end of this episode, but um, I'm really glad that it is. Um, yeah, I'll just play it for you. I went and saw 2001 once on acid. And I went to see it. I don't know if you – I expected that the Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, the end of the movie with all the trippy colors and stuff, I figured that was the moment I was waiting for. Yeah. What I didn't realize is that there's about 45 minutes of that movie where there's just no dialogue, basically, just space breathing. You know, like – Uh-huh. And I realized halfway through, I was like, oh, my God. I think I'm pretty confident that if this guy stops breathing, I'm going to stop breathing too. I really hope this goes on for a while. But you weren't scared? No. I was like, this is exciting. Like, what's going to happen? I've seen this movie, but I don't remember when the breathing stopped. <laughs> and then after the movie, I was sitting with my friend Alan, and we were talking about the philosophical ramifications of 2001. And this 
drunk, <laughs> this like drunk, like, I don't know how to, like a drunk homeless guy, basically. Okay. Wandered by and he was like, 2001. We were like, yep. He was like, you want to know what 2001 is about? And we were like, yeah, yeah, we're all ears, man. And he was like, it's about whether man and machine can replace woman and child. <laughs> That's really insightful. <laughs> yeah. That's really insightful. And we were like, you know what? Can't argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's how we ended it. I guess the reason I play that is like, um, why do I play that? I like, what I like about this story is we got to tell four different kinds of stories. Like we got to tell a failed profile, we got to tell uh, a sort of magazine piece with a slightly dopey question, we got to do this sort of hijinks, we're gonna try and experiment work and see what happens, and we got to do like this mode that our show does pretty well, I think, which is like people, like what like I like about like pop culture happy hour. Like it's like, people really working through things by talking about them in an actual way, not in a scripted way. And I think what, I, what like is cool about stories like this is they can be greater than the sum of their parts. Like none of these individual stories are like fantastic, but they really did feel good jammed together. Um, we talk a lot about this idea that like we don't want our stories to announce themselves. We don't want you to know the range of feelings you're gonna have going in. And if we have an opportunity to feel something inappropriate, by which I mean like a sad story that gets funny or a funny story that like hurts. We feel really excited about it. And we don't wanna like bring that in artificially, but we wanna be alive to responses we have, whether it's in an interview or in our path of reporting that are not like what we intended. Like as soon as it gets messed up, we now know that usually that's a good sign. Um, I wanted, so I, I, I wanna, there's one more point I wanna make about this, which is just that like, Another difficulty with a story um, is it, if you're going through yourself, if it's gonna be your curiosity, you're gonna be in the piece. And if you're gonna be in the piece, there's like a high possibility of being obnoxious. Like it's just, it's hard. It's like a more of a tightrope for writing. And you just need either an editor or a friend who you trust. Like the person you're playing specifically these kinds of pieces for should be the person who's like a hard laugh. Like who doesn't find you that funny, who's a little bit not charmed by you. Like, it's not the person who's in love with you, it's the person who's been friends with you for like six years and has heard every joke you're capable of telling. Like they're gonna hate you in a friendly way and you're gonna survive it and it's gonna like make the peace not make people wanna kill you. Not that like, I'm sure there are people who hear this and are like, ugh, get out of here. But like the many more would have felt that way if I didn't have really great editors on it. And I feel like I've tried to work to give people permission to be like, particularly when it's personal, I think sometimes people are like, we did a story about, um, it was similar, it was like I thought it was about this person who was Instagramming their depression and the story didn't quite work until like I sort of realized part of the reason I cared was I'd had a friend, I, I'm, I have depression, but I'd had a friend who also did and she had killed herself and I'd never, she disappeared, like she'd receded into it, I never got to talk to her about it. And so I wrote this really like personal writing about what that had been like and what it meant. And I was like, please don't be nice to this piece, like please do it. And so I'm reading this stuff and like, I had people like laughing and they were like, sorry, sorry, it's just like, if you listen to that sentence, like you're actually kind of saying like, you're the dead person or something like that. But like, that felt good. Like I felt safe. I felt like there's not sanctimony around this story that's gonna get, make it like the kind of bad story that no one admits is bad, but like everybody, you know what I mean? Um, so I think that's important. The, 
the other thing I wanted to just talk about is like, so I talked about this yesterday, and a lot of the questions I got were from people who were like, I do, you know, short news pieces. Like, I don't, like, how do you, what is the use of this feeling outside the context of a team of people that, like, really support you? And I think these stories are tricky. Like, before Reply All, I had a really hard time getting stories on any show, partly because I was not very good at telling stories, but partly because, like, stories like these don't pitch well. Like, you can't, you don't know what they are when they start. They kind of reveal themselves in the doing, but it's hard to just start them. So I think if you're freelancing and you want to do these, like, roving, wandering stories, I think it's something you do with a pitch that got shot down or a story that got killed after working on it for a bit. Like, the stories that you feel, like, stubbornly attached to, maybe you can articulate why, maybe you can't. It's fun to think about, like, if I use this as, like, the, uh, the broth for another thing, like, what will that mean? Like, what existing question do I have? Like, maybe I went out trying to answer this and it didn't work, but I still feel, feel curious. Like, you can build and build and build. But they're hard, they're hard to do. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is that, like, for people who are working in contexts where they do have support and stuff, but it's not, nobody's like, yeah, please do a 20-minute story about whatever, your weird ADD brain. I was thinking, like, how can this be useful? And, like, we also do stories that I think are more traditional reporting that, like, sound like traditional reporting. We like doing that. Um, and, but we try to take some of what we've learned in these other stories and apply it. And so what that means for us basically is, like, we talk about like we talk about two things. We talk about trying to get the story off the rails. Like we think of them as amusement park rides, and like how can you push the cart off? And so that can be as simple as like just a moment in an interview that probably you wouldn't expect to happen, but it happened, and like leaving it. It can be the small things, but it can also be like taking a story that people have heard and disguising it. So I wanted to play you guys this thing, um, but I, it's the one thing I didn't bounce out. So I'm gonna have to. This is gonna be a little messy, which is fine. Everyone's gonna survive, no one's gonna hit me. Um, but like, we had this thing happen, I think it was like six months ago. We do we a segment on the show called Yes, Yes, No, which is like predicated on the idea that we're explaining internet culture to our out of touch boss. Uh, the problem with the segment oftentimes is that we don't actually know that much and we'll screw something up that's like important and people will be like, you're representing yourselves as experts and you're wrong. Um, and we've had a few opportunities to correct those things, and oftentimes they're the parts of the show I love the most. Um, now I'm not getting internet, but I will. Um, so we did, we did this one about um, the word yas. Well, it like factored into it, and Alex and I were like, Alex Bloomberg, our boss, was like, where does that come from? We were like, oh, it's, a, it's internet slang, which is fucking not. Like, it's a word that comes from a very specific context, which is like, ball culture, like queer culture, mostly made by people of color, in New York in the 1980s, like you can find it. It's not an unanswerable question. It was just a question that we were ignorant of. And we got feedback from listeners that said like, you're wrong. Um, it wasn't like cruel or unkind, it was just like, you're wrong. And, I, and it'd be nice if you got it right. And so um, we tried to fix it. Like we tried to tell the story we hadn't told. And what that ended up being was, um, we talked to this guy, Jose Extravaganza, who was uh, one of the original people in the scene. He was a Vogue, like he danced Vogue. And he was this like amazing person. Like the way it worked was that there were different houses. Like it, it was a reference to like the fashion houses, but they were just groups of like queer and trans and like, you know, like kids who like the, nobody in the city, like people were 
They, they were like kicked out of home or they left home, like people who did not have much, and they were coming together in these like very informal families. And so the scene was built around doing this like, it, it's all in this movie Paris is Burning, which everybody in the world has seen but me. Um, but it, there's like these competitive dance scenes, but the structure around it are these houses, and it was really beautiful. So Jose, we interviewed him, and I just want to play one moment from it. It's going to take me a second. A slightly long piece of tape. He's talking about his first experience walking into like a house that a bunch of people were living in together, and then he's going to sort of go into... He's now the father of one of these houses, which is like, it's a very big deal. It means he's responsible for the people in it. And so he's going to talk about coming in as a kid and seeing it, and then like what it meant to then later, not much later, be given this title. His house is called the House Extravaganza. Okay, you ready? Actually take care of you. Like, you had a place to sleep if you needed it. You had food. Jose actually got an allowance from his house. The house even had people who were like the mother of the house and the father of the house. Jose is now the father of House Extravaganza, but back then, the father was this guy named Danny. I remember going over to uh, Danny Extravaganza, who, uh, may he rest, he passed away early on. And I remember I would just go to his house every day, and I would, every time I would come visit, there would be like sleeping bags and like people on the floor and, and like people waking up and somebody coming out of the bathroom. And I'm like, who are these people? I want to be here. I want a sleeping bag too, oh. you know? Yeah, it was the best feeling, that feeling of like a, un a unit. It was a unit. And um, yeah. And then, of course, like I've lost a lot of them to, you know, AIDS and stuff like that, you know? But they're with me, so. Do you have people, like, do you have people on your floor right now? Like, do you have kids in sleeping bags and stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at the moment. But I had, I had a, uh, a girl who just had a sex change, a little. Yeah, she just went through a very big transition and didn't know how to feel. So she came over my house. Yeah, and just, can you imagine just having this big procedure done? No parents, parents, you know, because... And no one there to be like to hold your hand. That's horrible. It's so much responsibility. Yeah, it is. But it's responsibility that you feel is, is, is a good responsibility. It's, it's like I know that I've made a difference in this young girl's life. She really looks to me like a father. I see it in her eyes. Yeah. And I've given you nothing because I really don't have anything. It's also, I don't know, like as someone who's outside of it, the fact that you can, like, just make family is, you know what I mean? Mm. It's just it's like, you best. have a family, fuck it. Like, exactly that. And it feels so good. And I'm just an emotional dude, that's all. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. And when I got asked to be the father, it was in a very hard time, you know? I'm 18, 19 years old, you know? All my friends are dying. And it's funny because I'd never met anyone else like them. You know how you always meet people. Oh, you remind me of this person. These guys were so ahead of everything. Geniuses. I miss them every day. It's crazy. So the reason I play that um, is because, like, I think we're really good, actually, like, us, like Third Coast, all of us. Like, I think we're good at these stories. Like, I think we're good at, like, stories about, like, 
people that get overlooked in a lot of media, people who like you need to care about. But I think sometimes we package these stories as important. Like, like I think that there's a version of the story that is like, you know, an icon of the New York City ball scene like reflects on you know the period of AIDS that like ravaged it. And there's people who are there for those stories, but there's people who who just see like vegetables. And I think if you trick people, which is I think part of our jobs, into like, no, 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 this is a fun internet story. This is a piece of uh, weird slang and a little mess up the Goofy Boys made. Like, you can go here. And the cool thing about tricking people into going here is like, people who didn't think they cared find out they do. And I also think that the scale of these stories changes based on that. I think that a story that says it's important up top, it can flatten the people in it, um, not that they're caricatures, you're just like, they're like in a history book or something. Whereas if they sneak on stage in this way, I think you meet them the way like it felt to meet him, which was like, real. <laughs> like, like, um, like, I think it does something. Um, so yeah, I, I think like, I, I've just been thinking about it, I think like, I would like to be, um, I'd like to, when we're telling conventional stories, to, to not tip our hand uh, sometimes when it's possible. That's what I've got. Thanks, guys. Questions? Questions? Sam's not asking a question. He's uh, bringing the microphone to people. So if people have questions, they should raise their hand. Although, Sam, if you have a question, that's cool, too. Hi there. Hey. Uh, I'm Benny. Um, nice to meet you. Thanks for speaking with us. Um, but on, on that last point you made about, um, I guess about kind of hiding the vegetables or not, not putting what, why this is important and you should care at the very top, I'm sorry to, to be falling into the line of what you said you got yesterday, um, but like if you put that into a context where it is kind of more of a news story, yeah, is there, I mean, it's, it seems like what you did is, you know, you hook it, you guys have your, you know, you have your personalities and you have... You can't do an update the on framing yes, yes, no on, as a news story. Exactly. Like, are there are there other framings that might be more versatile, more usable for people who don't kind of have the continuous following that you have to riff off of? Yeah, I think there are. I think like I think we get away with being much less up. Like people, I think we've earned. Oh, it sounds boring, but it won't be. Like I think we've earned more of that. Um, but I think it's as simple. It doesn't have to be so much tricking as like just. I I did a lot of. I did like five years of like much more traditional two ways. And the pitch almost, the pitch became the intro, and the intro told almost the whole story every single time. And the thing that I've been trying to learn how to do is just like, not lie to people, but not, I think you could tell that story and you could present it as much more like, I don't know, like we had this question, like where the, you could do a story that was like, oh, like, like I could have done a WIC culture story that's just like, we're hearing this word yas everywhere, like it's on Broad City, da da da. We wanted to find out what it was. And, and so you just like, you use the language of this is like a fun explainer, and then you sneak into this other thing which is important. I think that's still possible. And like sometimes it's not. Like there are stories, not every story needs to be some whatever. Like there are stories that are news and like can be news and like we don't, that's okay. But I think if you, I don't know very much and I'm not the right person and I'm trying to figure out more about making people, like we all are like, how do we make people care about some things that seem very important right now? But the one thing that I want to do more of because I think we know how to do it is like, is this, is like not make things that feel like prestige 
you know, that, that aren't like, this is important. I don't think there's, are, I think a lot of people don't want to listen to an important story. But they want to listen to like a story about a question you had, and then if it goes to a place that's important, it feels like a nice payoff. Hi, I'm Arwen. Thanks hey. for doing this. Um, so you were talking about the four different acts, and I know that in a lot of your stories they take all these different crazy turns, but I'm wondering how you guys as a group help each other do that. When you're feeling super fatigued and you're just like, oh, this story fucking sucks now, and yeah. I don't know how to do what's next, how do you guys encourage each other and find those turns to take and push, them, push, push each other to take those turns? Some of it's bullying, like some of it's being like, I don't want to do this anymore, and somebody being like, well, you have to, because we need something. Um, but a lot of times, people outside of your story are going to be the ones who actually help suggest the new direction it could go in. Because it, like, I think sometimes good editing is like being interviewed, whether it's like writing, where they're like, I think you care about this in a more specific way than your writing suggests, but also with things like this, where somebody can just like, you go into it and you're thinking like a reporter and you're thinking like, do I have the tape I need? Does this work? Blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of become like self-alienated in this weird way. And someone is talking to a colleague, they can be like, well, you keep talking about this part. Like, it seems like you care about this part. Or they can just ask you a question that you didn't have, but that you realize like a good question. Like, uh, I'm not supposed to talk about stories we're working on, but it, who cares? I have this story that we've had for like two years and it's, um, it has, it, part of its problem is it has no reason to exist. It's a very old, it's like 10 years old. It's about this guy who created, <laughs> he was like, I've got an idea. What we should have is a gun that is controlled by someone on the internet. And you can use it to remotely hunt, like deer and stuff like that. Everyone's gonna love this. And everybody hated it. Like PETA hated it, but also like the NRA hated it. It was like the one gun issue that seems to ever happen where like everybody agreed, this guy sucks. And uh, he was lovely. Like, he, he was like, this is for my friend who's disabled. Um, and, like, why shouldn't he be able to do this? Like, we can't build a ramp into the wilderness. Like, why is everybody such a problem with this? But, like, drones are cool. I really liked him. But it, the story's kind of not great because, like, the guy who he did it for cannot talk and has, his health has declined a lot. And without him, you're kind of skeptical. Like, is this really true? And so, like, we have this great character study. And we might just do it that way. But it's been sitting on the shelf for a year and a half. And I was talking to Tim about it. And we were talking about how funny it was that this was like the gun story everybody agreed on. And he was like, when did the NRA get like that? Like, when did they, when did they get so hardline? Which is a story people know. Like, um, there was a great, I can't remember, it was print. Somebody did a thing about, like, in the 70s, there was this, like, takeover of the NRA by, like, more lobbyist people and less just, like, rifle enthusiasts. We are like, oh, we can have that question. We can tell that story. When we get to the end of it, I don't know how it's going to come back to that guy. But like, I figure we'll find a way. So I think, like that might be what we do. But I didn't have that idea. But talking about it raised a question and another person I was talking to. I was like, yeah, that's a good question. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, from the back. Hi. I'm surprised. Um, <laughs> Two mics. I have kind of, excuse me, <laughs> I wasn't planning to talk. I have more of a comment, and this is kind of a pet issue of mine, so forgive me, I just like to say it to as large groups of people as possible, to radio producers and people like that, that what you were saying at the end there about ways to frame a story, I feel like points out um, and something I've been thinking a lot about 
where we come from, how we frame who we are um, in terms of our like position in society and stuff. Anyway, what I'm talking about is whiteness, basically, yeah. and privilege. And I think that the way what what it sounded like you were saying was that you can either hide it as vegetables or highlight this person as, for example, Jose Extravaganza, as someone who went through struggle and trauma and triumphed and is you know is kind of a someone to lift up and hold up as an example. And um, I feel like something that gets missed a lot when we talk about like bringing diverse stories is that people of color and people who have struggled are also people. So I think the other missing angle would, or there are many, many missing angles, but maybe it's just like an artist, a guy who's had this really interesting life or you know, a dude who had friends who has interesting stories like any other dude. Um, and so I just want to, I just want to point that out. I really appreciate actually how you framed that. I heard that episode and I really appreciate how you you guys were so transparent about like we didn't know what this was and now we're going to make up for that and we want if you don't know what this is here now you should know what this is too. But in terms of what you just said, I think I in our industry want everyone myself included to think about like what um what what ways we talk about people and to remember that people who um People are just regular people too, even ones who are poor, or ones who have AIDS, or ones who have lost all their friends, or ones who have gone through some um, big historical era or event. They're also just people just like you. Thanks for saying that. And yeah, I don't know, like, one of the things that is weird for us, honestly, is like, or one of the things we thought about with that story, I hope this speaks to your comment, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's dumb. I'd like to hear if you think so. Um, we did that story. I mean, that story is so, um, it's explaining something to a white, straight audience mostly. Like, queer people don't not know this stuff. Um, and so it's weird. Like, the language of the story, like, I think some of the concerns you have probably, like, do live in that story where it's like, we're going to pay attention to this, but only at its, like, most dramatically tragic. Um, and that sucks. I think that's, like, a good thing for us to think about. Um, Another thing we thought about with that story was like, we got feedback from people saying like, you erased us, which we had. And I'm a coward and like, I don't like being wrong in public. And like, my instinct was, uh, do we have to fix this at first? And I talked to uh, my girlfriend who's smarter than me. And she said, um, she was like, you don't have to fix it. People aren't gonna yell at you. You're just telling them this isn't for them. Like, they know that you're white, and they know that you're straight, and they know what that means about how you see the world, but you're just saying, like, don't fucking bother listening. Like, this isn't for you. And so when we tried to make it, like, what I was trying to do was to say, like, to talk to at least two audiences. Like, one to be like, hey, you don't know this, and I didn't know this, and let's learn it together. But also to an audience that did know and be like, we're fucking sorry, and we see you. Um, and I don't know if we succeeded or not, but it's something that I've been trying to think about in what we're doing is, like, we got really, really, we got so many letters and, and so much nice stuff for, for that correction. And we, and like, that was nice for us, but like, we should have gotten it right in the first place. But, but the thing that I try to learn from is like, we have audiences that we don't hear, and then we tell them to go away by like, not hearing them. And, and like, it's easy to focus on the people who are tweeting at you more or whatever. And we, we really benefited from doing that story and from being stupid in public. And yeah, anyway, thank you for your comment. Do, do, please, yeah. Um, just that I really, 
my, my comment wasn't actually about your story, because I actually really did feel like you guys did that quote unquote right. Like, it's something that I really appreciated as a person of color and as a person who identifies as queer and as someone who has lots of people like that in my personal life. Um, but I, again, I feel like I wanted to take the opportunity because so many stories and news stories are about struggle and are about, like when people talk about covering race, a lot of times that's like a code word for covering inequity. Yeah. Or like when you want to talk about a diversity of people, you only want to talk about like the poor and strugglingness of that. And so that's, I think, what I wanted to just say to all the ears that are in this room. It seems like a prime moment to do so. So that's all. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I really appreciate a lot of the thing. I, there's a lot that I have to take away from things that you're saying in this discussion here. I'm, I'm in Utah about to launch my own new podcast and I'm trying to sneak in stories about Mormons and non-Mormons and get folks to listen to each other. So <laughs> um, there's a lot I can take away from this. The thing that I'm struggling with is that I'm alone. And um, a lot of what I'm hearing you say I'm wondering if essential to your process is the people that you're working with. And oh, yeah. I want, I'm just thinking, like, what hubris do I have to think that I could do this alone, really, right? I mean, is that essential? You should have that hubris, absolutely. It's, it is hard, and I am lucky, and I know that I'm lucky. When I started, um, I've been in radio for, for nine years now. When I started, I felt like I was sitting alone in the cafeteria, and there was other tables, and there was like a cool kids table, and um, and it was and like all I wanted to do was like like a lot of people I, I wanted to work at this American Life so badly. Um, I'm sure that's like a relatable feeling, um, and they're they're amazing, they're great. But what was happening at the same time was I was working with a bunch of like sweaty aspiring schlubs like me, and and like some of us were like trying to figure out like who was getting each other's way and like who's going to get the internship and like that stuff. Those schlubs are who like I make this stuff now with, and there are people who feel special to other people. But like somebody asked me yesterday, like how did you decide like to work with Alex Coleman? How did you guys know you had a golden rapport? Blah, blah blah. We were both bad at our jobs and covered each other's butts and didn't know what we were doing and talked about stories and gave each other tons of bad advice. But like I guess what I'm saying is like there are people around you who I think you might think of as like just like fellow friends or whatever that you got like. You, they'll be, you're, you all kind of like rise together and like I wish I'd spent less time waiting for permission and trying to get in and more time just like with them, it, even if it's just like friends. Like most of the story, the edits I got for the first like, definitely in TLDR was like talking to friends and being like, hey, I know this is annoying, but can I just send you this? And like sometimes I had people who were like on Mount Radio Genius who I could get to listen to like one thing and I would, um, but yeah, like, I wish I'd looked sideways instead of like where I thought I had to get faster. I would have wasted less time. And it's really fucking cool that you're doing it. Hi, PJ. Thanks hey. for doing this. Thanks um, for coming. I was wondering, because you ran into that problem, the thing that you failed at earlier of trying to get this person out of talking in cliches. I wonder if what you do to prevent that to happen when you're hearing it is like your strategies of getting people to 
talk specifically, and maybe this is, it's obvious and ask some specific questions, and maybe there's something else that I'm missing because I've run into that problem before. It's so not obvious, it's so hard. I feel like I have a lot of things I try. Um, so I'll try, I'll just, I'll just say, I'll, the, more, the more cliche they are, the dumber I'll get, like where I'm like, oh, I just don't understand. Um, until they get a little bit frustrated. I sometimes find that useful, like frustration, like you idiot, uh, seems to help. Um, I, I do a lot of follow-up questions. I'll say like, wait, 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 but don't talk about it like that. Like, can you, can you tell me it like, tell me it like it's a movie. Tell me it like you're talking to a friend. Like, I'll try that stuff more. I didn't used to have the confidence to do that, and now I'm just so annoyed that I, I feel like less scared. Um, something that I'd heard Robert Krulwich does is he'll ask completely weird questions, like in the middle of it. Like, he'll be like, um, I started asking people what things smelled like, and it totally shakes them up, like, because they have to think. Like, you're trying to get them out of the thing they already wrote in their head. And so if you ask them a question that, like, attacks that memory in a new way, it can help. There's this Linda Berry thing. She's a comics artist, but she has people do diaries, and she has a series of questions she asks them to, like, unlock a memory. And, like, one of the things is, like, I, I want to try this, but I'm, like, a little bit too scared. But she'll be like, if it's a story, she'll be like, okay, close your eyes. Look to your left. What do you see? Look to your right. And she asked the smell thing too, and, and she has a way of like, if you're comfortable with that kind of driving, which I'm not always. The other thing, I will ask people very off-topic questions um, to like, I don't know, you're just trying to get them out of a reciting mode. The other thing is sometimes people do that stuff, sometimes when people are uh, closed up in interviews, I find it's because they're listening to my questions, trying to figure out what I think of them and what story I'm gonna tell. And what I've tried to be better at saying is like, here's what I think this is, and here's my theory of, of you, and like, I'm not in love with that theory, and I'd like you to tell me where I'm wrong, but like, these are why, like, I, I try to be less cagey about stuff. One of the better interviews I had that started out like that and got better was I was interviewing these um, teenagers about a One Direction conspiracy they believed in, and like, that interview started out really hard, and then I was like, okay, hold on. I'm just going to tell you, like, I don't believe you, I don't think what you're saying is, is true, but I would love to be convinced. And like, I'm not gonna make you look dumb. I'm going to say that I don't believe you and I'm gonna let you make the best case and I'm with you to make the best case. And if I ask you questions that are challenging it, those are questions listeners are gonna have, but like, I would love to be convinced. And they just like, that. Um, it was really different. And I think they were just like trying to figure out where the punch was gonna come from. And when they knew it wasn't gonna come, it was easier. But people are hard. Like, it's just hard. It's never easy. Good, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I feel like Reply All breaks a lot of formats a lot of times. Like you guys really shake things up. Um, but you guys are also like a weekly show. So yes. I wanted to ask in terms of production, how do you make sure you guys essentially like feed the beast without getting stuck in the clog and give yourself permission to take those risks yeah. creatively? Well, some of the risks we end up taking end up being because of the beast. Like, we, like, this kind of thing is, like, this specific story is not, like, oh, it'd be fun to do experimentation. It's, like, uh, it's still not working. Let's try another thing. Like, all those steps were not joyful. Those steps were all scared. All of them felt bad. Um, those stories aren't fun to make. They're just fun to have made and to finish. Um, I do think a lot about, like, there are stories that I know can be really special, and I try to protect them. Like, if Shruti's working on something, like, beautiful and great, I'm, like, I can do, like, I can go interview somebody and we can turn around in three days. Yes, Yes, No exists 
initially, so we could protect more repositories, we've learned that we love the short stuff and we love the long stuff and we just feel bad when we're only doing one of either. Um, but yeah, it's like I always say, nobody played Command and Conquer Red Alert, uh, so it's not a very good metaphor. But there's like a whole genre of video game where it's like you're managing resources and like how many tanks are you going to buy? They might send airplanes, whatever. And making a show feels so much like that to me where you're like, we're going to put some trust on this story and hopefully it'll work. And like this story might suffer a little bit. Um, it's kind of the joy of it for me actually. Not that it's joy, it's pain. But yeah, the excitement of it. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> I was just wondering if you have thoughts on like how do you decide how much of yourself to include in the story as a character? Yeah, I struggle with it. I I'm very sick of myself, uh, despite like all available evidence, and like I'd like to do it less. I think generally it's better if <sighs> I like finding out that a story is personal rather than starting from a place of personal like. I never wanted to start out being like, I was feeling this way, and I never wanted to end being like, I specifically learned this. Like, I, it just doesn't feel right to me. Um, but I like when you realize, like, oh, my curiosity about this story exists because of me, like something that's particular to me, and, and that's when I tend to try to do it. Um, like, I tend to try to do it when I notice that otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Um, it's really tricky, though. It's like the hardest thing, which isn't good advice, it's just an observation. <laughs> This is a uh, related question. Um, oh, hi. I, I, it's a related <laughs> question to one that was asked earlier, but uh, I just am a fan of your technique. Could you please talk about how you get people to talk about difficult things? You mean like emotionally difficult things? Or things that would embarrass them professionally? Uh, huh. I'm pretty candid about my stuff. And if I think, I, so I'll do that in interviews, like I'll, I'll tell an embarrassing story about myself. Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot of whether it feels like interviews work well or not for me, or if the person, if we're just like, if it feels like we're on the same side. I mean, obviously, not if some interviews are adversarial, but if it feels like they know why I'm there, not in a larger sense, but in like an emotional way, I guess. And like, they know what kind of, I try to, I'm not an organized person, so I don't do a great job being like, here's what's gonna happen, it's gonna be 20 minutes, this and this and this. Like, I, I oftentimes botch that, but like, I want them to know the kind of thing I'm trying to make. That's not a great answer. Um, it's hard, it's really hard. And there are people who are just not gonna do it. Like, we do a lot of casting. Like, we'll think like, if we're gonna interview this expert or this expert, like, we'll watch them on YouTube. And like, we, we kind of make it easier for ourselves by doing that. I don't know, that's not terribly good advice. Sorry. Uh, hey, PJ, I'm Alex. Um, so something I struggle with a lot is like, after a long day of editing or working on something, the last thing I want to do is continue to do that. I just yes. want to lay down and watch Netflix. And so I thought, you and Alex and your team, given that your show involves going down internet wormholes all day and looking at screens, do you bake stuff into your schedule to like get away from everything and like find new stories? I mean, I, I've always thought that about your show. It's like, how do you get away from screens? That's a great idea. Um, <laughs> no, we don't. What I do find is, the, like, we work a lot because whatever, we're young. Like, our show's young. Um, we work a lot. 
uh, every time I get like a little bit of escape from it, I usually find a story. Like I'll be like, okay, now we're now we're not doing. It. Like I took a I took a three day vacation a year and a half ago to hang out with my like Texas family and go hunting. And they told me two the live shot story that that was one they told me, and they told me this other one. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's important to do. I think I do a terrible job of it. Our show's also weird because a lot of our stories aren't like stories, or they're not like. I found this thing, and they, they start very, like, haphazardly. So I, I feel like I never have ideas for stories, but we do so many stories, so obviously we have ideas for stories. I think it's good to do that, and we don't. Yeah, you hear that from comedians a lot. Like, if they're running out of material, they'll just go do stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's, I have a hard time doing that. Sometimes. Pete Holmes says, like, you have to have a life worth commenting on. Yeah. Good luck. Hi, PJ. Hey. Um, I'm an energy reporter um, with an LJC called Inside Energy. And so I think what I do on a daily basis is pretty different from what you're describing. But um, that kind of sense of wonder, I think you guys do really well. It's like very gleeful. And I think that with shorter news stories, and especially something like kind of technical and science-y like energy, there isn't always room for glee and wonder and sort of burying the lead and that kind of stuff. And I'm just wondering if you think there's anyone who does it well in news. Like I would say Planet Money. Planet Money does it well. Cultivate that. And I'm just wondering if, Mac, if there are any specific kind of reporters to pay attention to or shows. I hear it in ATC a lot. I hear it in the interviews. Like I just hear like, I hear a human being who's present. Like, I hear somebody just, I hear actual curiosity, and I hear somebody following up in a way I wouldn't expect them to. And I just, like, like for me, what I want, and it doesn't have to be some weird structure. Like, what I want is, like, I want to hear you thinking it out, and I want to hear you feeling it. And, like, not every story is going to be that, and it shouldn't. But, but that's what I get excited about. Matt Katz, I think, does it well. Like, I think he's, like, yeah. I don't know. I worked, I mean, I did a long time in a really similar context, I think. And like, I don't, we, somebody asked me about it yesterday, and I was like, well, you find your opportunities and you do it. I also felt a lot of frustration, and like, that's real, and I felt dishonest for not saying that yesterday. Like, if you, it doesn't feel good to want to feel like you've reached the constraints of what you're able to do with what you've got. And like, I think there's usually opportunities, and there's little stuff, and you should be alive to it, and you should look for ways to break it. But it's annoying. I mean, we also, I feel like we do tell some stories that are like, a piece of code went missing, and like we're going to explain it. Um, we just look for opportunities to be weird, um, and sometimes we don't find them. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's annoying. I, I just don't want to be the kid who's like, well, at my family's house. Like like it's a different, harder job in a lot of ways, and that's real. Thanks. Hey, BJ. Thanks hey. for this. Thanks. Um, so I, I mean, I, I loved this episode. I thought you guys did such a really good job. And I remember like listening to it on the train and like almost missing my stop. Like one of those, one of those episodes. It was really great. Um, uh, I will say that like, if I had done the story, um, I would probably have kind of, I, so the way you structured it was like, it was the hotline, if I remember correctly, it was like the hotline and then the, uh, the guy, the older the guy. Yeah. yeah. And then you went into your story. And that was the part for me that was the most wondrous and surprising and, and fun. Um, and I remember listening to the beginning of the story, and sorry, I'm like, I don't mean to 
uh, you know, kind of challenge you or whatever. But like, I remember kind of, you know, listening to the story and being like, why are we talking about this? And then we get to you and I'm like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the entire world. And I wonder why, and you know, like everyone has different, you know, um, you know sensibilities. And I just wonder why you decided to keep those things in. You did say you wanted to, you know, talk about the, the process and, and backing in. And I think that that's, that's uh, good in a lot of ways. And I wonder, first of all, if anyone felt differently, um, but it, would just what your, like, would the story not have worked if, if you didn't do that, you know? We had that argument a lot. Uh, I think I may have been on your side of it, actually. Um, the trade-off is there are people who are not going to listen to six minutes of, like, whatever that is, and who are never going to get to find out what happens. And I think, let me rewind. We struggle with, how we really like withholding information. We really like stories that feel ordinary until they don't. And sometimes we're willing to turn off some people so the people who stay get like a much deeper and richer surprise. And I think one of the advantages of a podcast is like, you, we, I think we, we're teaching our audience what kind of stories we think we want to make and like, so they're more liable to stick around. I'm not sure we were totally right. Like I think, I think we could have done a better job of like baiting up top, of being like, without giving it away, saying like something's gonna happen or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's like that's the biggest argument we have as a show though. Because our stories oftentimes don't have that many actual surprises to spend over the course of it. And so if you've got a big one, there's a real temptation to like signal that up top. Bloomberg is always like, he likes intros that are like, today we've got a story that starts at a small diner in New Jersey, but winds its way on a train through like the deepest parts of wherever and involves a, a smoking gun and like a sad clown. And like, he likes to like really promise it and then like hit the promise. And so when we started, we did a lot of that. And Tim's always like, no, no, they can't know anything. This should all disappear under their feet. Um, you can go either way, that, but that's our argument that we have, every story. We're having it literally right now <laughs> about something. Yeah. Yeah, one more. And I'll hang out if anybody's got anything else. Hey, thanks for the talk. Um, the I'm just wondering if you could talk a little more about how it seems like you had a pretty structured and purposeful approach to the initial interview and you kind of laid out your shopping list of what you thought the story was going to be and what you need to cook it. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, in all of the crazy different directions you went, if you were reevaluating and redoing that every time, and like how your preparation changed at each step of the every plan. single time. Like I think this is the thing that I didn't know how to do before, like recently, and it has really helped me. Is like, I think even though we like doing stories that go in crazy places that are unanticipated, I think you should go into your story with a strong theory of what the story could be, if you can. Sometimes you really just do have a question, that's fine. But like, you should, like, I really think of it as like, you know, Jim Fadiman, the second guy. It was like, I want to hear like how he got into psychedelics. I want to hear, I knew that he'd done the background, the underground stuff. So like, how did that happen? Like, I had an idea of like the arc of his story. And you're wrong always, but like, yeah, I think, and we're constantly, the tool we use the most in our office is a whiteboard where we're like, okay, okay, what are the beats of this story? And like, we'll stop edits midway, before an edit, after the edit, like, we always say beats, like, we have an evolving theory of what it's gonna be. That theory changes over and over and over again, and it's where all the hard work happens. Um, 
but it's what allows these stories to happen. And, and like, yeah, because all of these have actually pretty traditional structures. They're just like jammed together, but they have to internally work for that to be okay. Is that a helpful answer? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, everybody.